Amen. Well, does anybody love Jesus today? Come on, say amen. Amen. Are you glad you're redeemed? Amen. Come on, the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Yeah, I know a lot of teenagers that say it all the time. So? Come on, you got a testimony today, man. Anybody still believe Jesus saves, heals, and delivers? Come on. You believe we're in a house of miracles this morning? Telling you, there's power in a good confession. In fact, your faith began with a good confession. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, I want to show you a verse on the screen here as we get ready to get into the word today. This is what Paul said about your confession. He said, fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession. Come on, you've got to activate that faith. He said, take hold of it. Take hold of it this morning. There's power in a testimony. The Bible says we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb. That's the sacrificial blood of Jesus and by the word of our testimony. Anybody got a testimony today? Amen. God's been good. Your faith begins with a testimony and it is maintained with a testimony. Many of you could quote this verse, but Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10 says this, that if we confess With your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with the heart that we believe unto righteousness. And it is with the mouth that we confess. The confession is made unto salvation. A confession is powerful. Can I just tell you today, when you make a confession, here's what that that word in the original language means. The, The Greek etymology of the word confession means to say the same thing, to say the same thing that the scripture says about it. So so when you confess Jesus, as we were doing in song a moment ago, as we confess, what we're saying is the same thing the Bible says about Jesus. That's my confession. I believe he is who he said he was. And when you confess your sins, what you're saying in that moment is I confess, I'm saying the same thing about my sin that the Bible says about it. Now, now in our culture, we have a lot of pet names for sin. You know, we like to call it all kinds of things. You know, it's a condition. It's something I'm working through, you know, whatever. But how many of you know the Bible clarifies it real simple with three little letters? It's sin. And so when I confess sin, I stop making excuses. I, I come to, to the truth of saying what God says about it. My daughter, Morgan, uh, who is helping lead worship this morning, she loves old books. Uh, she collects old books, and she picked this one up uh, probably a year ago, year and a half ago, and uh, it, it was written in 1892, 1892. It's called Spurgeon's Sermons, and so she brought this book home. I don't know if you know anything about Charles Hayden Spurgeon, but Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. And uh, so he, he set the high bar for all of us. I, I, about a year ago, I was thumbing through this book, and I came to a sermon that he preached called Confession of Sin. He preached it in 1857 on January 18th. And this week, as I was thinking about the power of confession, my mind went back to that sermon. It stuck with me because he had seven Bible texts and three words that were consistent in all seven. And so I went back, and I picked up this book, and and began to meditate on that sermon. I, I want to share with you those seven men that he speaks about in that sermon from 1857. 
and the three words that are consistent with all of them. But here's what I want you to know about a confession, specifically a confession of sin, before we jump into this. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I know this might not sound like a, a popular topic in, in, the, in the world today. Maybe you're even sitting here listening with reluctance going, really? Confession of sin? But as you look at that verse, can I just tell you the, the hard truth of it is there are no good promises in the Bible for those that do not confess sin. There are promises, but not the kind you want. There's no good promises in the Bible for those that are not willing to confess sin. In fact, the Bible says this in Psalm 66, David said, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, doesn't that sound a lot different than, than, than the cultural uh, approach to God? Like every, you know, we're all God's children. Just, you know, let's all just come together. David said, if I had cherished sin, he wouldn't even listen to my prayers. So you get one of two options. You can cherish sin or you can confess sin. But the good promises that God has are, are accessible to us because we come with a pure heart, with clean hands, having confessed our sins to God. So I, I want to show you these seven different men that Spurgeon talked about in 1857. If you're a note taker, we'll put the, the seven points on the screen because uh, I'm going to move pretty quickly today. Number one is the hardened sinner. The hardened sinner, the story is found in Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. It says, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, saying, this time I have sinned. What do you think caused the most powerful leader in the known world at that time to say, I have sinned? I mean, Pharaoh never was before. He never submitted his heart to, to the lordship of, of, of God. He, he all of a sudden says, I have sinned. Well, we don't have to wonder what motivated him because if you look at the story in Exodus chapter 9, verse 23 says, when Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. Notice this. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Have you noticed when people are in the worst storm of their life, it's easy to get desperate for God? This guy had no, no compulsion to confess any wrongdoing to anybody. He's in charge. He's accountable to no one. But when he's in the worst storm of his life, he says those three words, I have sinned. And many of you, you know the story that this uh, lightning flashing and hail falling to the ground and destroying all the vegetation and the crops and the trees, it was only the seventh of ten plagues. So you have to stop here and go, well, why, why, why did God send three more plagues? I mean, if Pharaoh said, I have sinned, isn't that enough? Well, again, we don't have to speculate as to why. As you read the story, down in verse 34, it says, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail had thundered, had stopped, he sinned again. That's the hardened sinner. 
That's the one that, that, that when I don't know what to do, I'll call on God. That's the crisis hotline prayer. That's the person that just says, I need God to show up and do something for me now. But as soon as I get through this, their confession is forgotten. I love the way that uh, Spurgeon spoke about this moment himself. He said, the repentance that was born in the storm died in the calm. If you're 25 and under, you're, you're too young to remember what it was like to live in America without the fear of terrorism. But a lot of us, uh, we can remember exactly where we were and exactly what we were doing on the day that we became very aware of the real threat of terrorism in this country on September 11th, 2001. And something amazing, in fact, two things that were amazing happened that week, as I recall that Tuesday. What happened over the coming days was, uh, number one, we sold out of American flags. There was like this, this new found patriotism. Everybody, same team. You know, it wasn't left, it wasn't right, it wasn't Democrat, it wasn't Republican. It was same team. And, and everybody was buying flags. The second amazing thing that happened is that following weekend, the churches were full. We've never had a crisis like this. And I remember when, when uh, my wife and I, we were newlyweds at the time. We didn't have any kids yet, but I remember sitting in our house and we were talking about, you know, what kind of world are we going to be bringing kids into? Like there was that sense of vulnerability, like something has changed and we're not really sure what the future is going to hold. But many of you remember what happened. Pretty soon our, our, our troops rallied and there was a counteroffensive, and we demonstrated our strength and our military power and things were stabilized and pretty soon people went back to business as normal except for a few inconveniences like having to take your shoes off at airport security and not being able to walk people to the terminal. But we moved on and everything went back to normal and the churches went back to their pre-crisis attendance. The Bible says this in James chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by works, is dead faith. And can I just say in much the same way, confession by itself, if it is not accompanied with a sincerity of heart, it is dead confession. Maybe you're here today and you would say, like Pharaoh, I am in the worst storm of my life. Can I encourage you? Call on God. You're in the right place. He is the one that can calm the storm. Absolutely, call on him. He said in Jeremiah 33 and 3, call upon me and I'll show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Listen, if you're in a storm, call on Jesus. But can I also encourage you, don't forget the vow you made in the storm. Because God hasn't. And we don't want to develop a calloused heart that equates God to nothing more than a cosmic Santa Claus or a genie in a bottle when I need help. Number two, let me tell you about the double-minded man. His story is found in Numbers chapter 22. The double-minded man is Balaam. And let me just say, if you're familiar with Balaam's story, this is a hard guy to understand. I mean, when you read this story, like, is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? I'm not really sure. But here's what it says in Numbers 22 and verse 34. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. And the reason that he's hard to understand is because he's one guy on the mountaintop, he's a different guy in the valley. 
I mean, when you look at Balaam, the, the king of the Moabites, Balak, had come to him and he, he said, I want to pay you to curse the people of Israel. They're growing in number. They're, they're, there's a military threat. So I want you to curse them. And Balaam said, I cannot curse who God has blessed. So I'll go, but I can only say what the Lord allows me to say. You get Balaam up on the pronounces seven prophetic blessings over God's people. In fact, he even speaks a, a prophetic word about the coming of Jesus. This is way back Old Testament, Numbers 22, 24, verse 17. He says, I, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So here's this guy on the mountain. God is using his gifts to prophesy and speak blessing over his people and to point to the coming Messiah. And yet when you get Balaam in the valley, He's a different guy. When he gets into the valley, he says to King Balak, I, I couldn't curse the people, but if you don't want them to be blessed, if you want them to be cursed, why don't you send your Moabite women in there to seduce the men of Israel? And so the men of Israel, they, they sat down at their tables. They ate the, the food that was prepared for them that had been sacrificed to false gods and idols and and they committed, they committed sexual acts with these Moabite women. And the Bible says in Numbers 25 and verse 3, So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. You know, there's a lot of double-minded Christians today. They sincerely want to declare God's blessing on his people, but they also want to celebrate the sexual immorality in our culture. A Balaam spirit, it's a double-minded spirit. Pay attention to these words. The Lord's anger burned against them, and it still does. Have you known people like Balaam, double-minded, one way on Sunday, another way on Friday? I mean, and the thing is, when you see, you see them in church, like they, they seem sincere, they are sincere, I mean, they're going after. They love the Lord, they love the church, they, they love to worship, all that stuff. But yet you, you, you meet them in another setting and their life tells a different story. James said this about the double-minded person. He said a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. In fact, he shouldn't expect to receive anything that he asks from the Lord. So can I encourage you today to, to make a, a positive confession of faith, make a sincere confession of your sin. But remember this, the positive confession on Sunday does not exempt you from accountability the rest of the week. A double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let me tell you about this third person. The third one is the insincere man where Balaam was sincere about everything. He was sincerely righteous and he was sincerely wrong. The insincere man is King Saul. In fact, King Saul, he wasn't sincere about anything. And every time we see his story, his character is constantly being shaped by his circumstances. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 24, it says, Then Saul said to the prophet Samuel, I have sinned. And then he goes on in that verse to say, the reason I sinned, the reason I violated the Lord's instruction was because I was afraid 
of the men. So I gave into, in other words, he gave himself an excuse. And it's not the first excuse. If you back up a couple verses, you know, Samuel's saying, hey, look, you were supposed to destroy the city and, and all the devoted things belong to the Lord, but instead you kept all the sheep and the cattle. What happened? He said, oh no, I only did that because I wanted to make a sacrifice for the Lord, see. And then years later when he's hunting David to kill him, he, he misses the opportunity and then David pops out of a cave and one more time Saul says, I have sinned. But he had tried to kill him the day before and the day after. Insincere insincere you know the insincere man comes to church he shows up because he messed up but he's not really here to garner God's approval maybe it's maybe it's just that he doesn't want his wife to be mad at him anymore but I'll come because this seems like the appropriate thing to do in the moment and if this will appease my conscience or other people I'll do it sure I'll go along I messed up, I admit it, just don't be mad at me anymore. The insincere man says whatever he needs to say to get the approval that he needs today. Can I just say to all of us today, you may impress the rest of us, but what God told the prophet Samuel about David is true of all of us. While man looks at the outside, God is looking at your heart. Let me tell you about the fourth guy. This is the, what Spurgeon called the doubtful penitent. The doubtful penitent man. His story is found in Joshua chapter seven. And it says in verse 20, Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned. Joshua had led the Israelites to capture Jericho, the first city in the promised land. And he said, These, this city is devoted. I don't want you to keep the spoils of war. It's all devoted to the Lord. They went on from there to the next battle and they lost. And so Joshua cries out to God. He said, well, you know, God, you, you said you were bringing us, you were leading us here into the promised land. We got one victory under our belt and now we've been defeated. What are we gonna do? And God said, there's sin in the camp. There's disobedience. I'm not gonna bless you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to the Lord. So Joshua told the people what God said. He said, God said he's gonna destroy whatever was devoted to the Lord. In, in chapter seven and verse 15, here's Joshua's words. He said, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire. And he has done an with all that belongs to him he has violated the covenant of the Lord and he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. This is Achan's moment to not get caught with the devoted things. He could have said something right then. You know, wait, he said tomorrow God's gonna reveal who it is. I'm coming to your tent tonight. I got a confession to make, but he doesn't make the confession. And the next morning, all the 12 tribes of Israel line up in front of Joshua and God directs him to one tribe and that tribe steps forward. It's Achan's tribe. This is his moment. You could confess right now because the one who gets caught with the devoted things is gonna be destroyed, but he says nothing. And out of the tribe of Judah, a clan is chosen. It's Achan's clan. They're narrowing the pack here. And again, he could, he could confess right now, but he says nothing. And out of his clan, they choose his family. Now his family steps forward. He's got one more chance here to confess and say, it was me, it was me. But then out of his family, Achan is chosen. 
And it's only then, when all the eyes of Israel are on Achan, that he says those words, I have sinned. And, and when you read his confession, as we just saw it on the screen, it, it actually sounds sincere. Like, I mean, it's a good confession. And in fact, I was reading some commentaries that, that, that said because he made a good confession, Achan was saved. And they would point to verse 25 that says, Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us, Achan? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And, and some commentaries say because he emphasized today, what he was actually saying is God's judgment's gonna fall on you for your disobedience, but tomorrow there will be grace. In other words, you're gonna die for your sin, but you're gonna be saved. And to that interpretation, I say, I hope so. I hope Aiken's in heaven. But I gotta tell you, in, in 20 plus years of ministry, there's a lot of people that have died and I've been left saying, I hope so. I hope so. But he's the doubtful penitent because he had an opportunity. There's other scholars that would say because he missed his moment that when judgment fell, he was destroyed both body and soul. I think of the, the death row inmate facing execution who then confesses sin and gives his life to Christ. I think of the, the deathbed confession of the one with a terminal illness who time after time rejected the gospel, rejected the message of Christ and his love until this moment where death is staring them in the face. Think about the suicide note that you find. And within those final words is some profession of trusting in Jesus. And I read that and I say, man, I hope so. I really, I really do. I hope one day they'll be in heaven. But there's always this, this hint of doubt because their life tells a different story. Can I encourage you? Friends, don't let the journey of faith end for you with a question mark. Let it be an exclamation point. Let it be a statement that, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, come on. Let's not leave it to question. When Paul was coming to the end of his life, the apostle wrote one final letter to Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy 4, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. He knew his days were coming to an end. Then he said this, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Friends, don't let your dying day be the day you make your confession. Come on, you ought to live every day longing for his appearing. Say, I don't want there to be any question in my family. I know where I'm going. Achan was the doubtful penitent one. Let me tell you this about this fifth man. He's illustrates for us the repentance of despair. And this is probably the worst of all the confessions. Because in truth, this probably isn't even a repentance. It's remorse. And there's a difference. 
Matthew chapter 27, you'll likely be familiar with the story. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned. Here's why this is a repentance of despair. Because Judas actually confessed his sin, but he never believed he could be forgiven. He he didn't think he should be forgiven. In fact, the next verse says he went out and he hanged himself. So, so many people have a repentance of despair. In other words, they have enough faith to know what they ought to do. Like, I need to confess to God. I have enough faith to know. I got enough faith to believe that that the, the grace of God is greater than sin. They know they gotta do their part, but they don't believe God will do his part. Listen, the only difference between Judas and Peter was that they, when they both confessed sin, one of them believed they deserved and would receive punishment. The other believed they would receive grace. One became the leader of the church in the New Testament. The other went out and hung himself. Judas Betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Peter denied on the same night that he even knew Jesus three times. If you believe you're a sinner, but you don't believe that the Lord Jesus, who conquered sin on the cross, can offer you forgiveness, then, friend, your confession will be a repentance of despair. Let me tell you about the last two here. These are the best two confessions. Number six, the repentance of the saint. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned. Now, we know the testimony of David was that he was a man after God's own heart. In other words, if he was a part of the church today, we would all unequivocally say David is a Christian. David is a follower of God. And can I just say from this story, Christians ought to confess. Confession is not just something for the the backslider. It's not just something for the the rebel or the the heathen. It's something that Christians ought to do. David confessed his sin. In fact, out of the 150 Psalms in the Bible, seven of them are referred to as penitential Psalms or Psalms of Confession. And and of all of them, maybe the most famous one is Psalm 51. This, This is David's expansion on those three words that he said to the prophet Samuel, I have sinned. And when you read Psalm 51, you read his confession of that sin. And in verse 12, he said to the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In other words, David hadn't lost his salvation. He just lost the joy in it. There's a lot of people like that. Like, you're still in. I mean, God's not up there with a giant eraser taking your name out of the book of life every time you mess up a little bit. His grace is, is sufficient to hold you. But man, if you're, if you're living that life of known sin, David says, there's no joy in it anymore. I feel, I feel conviction. I feel like a burden. In fact, in one of the other penitential psalms, David describes what it felt like 
to be living in sin before he confessed. In Psalm 32, he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Have you felt that before? You just, man, the Holy Spirit's dealing with you. You know there's something you've got, and it just feels like the hand of God is just heavy on you. He said, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Like that burden, man, my bones are weary. I just feel so burdened today. I've lost the joy of serving the Lord. But look at the next verse. He said, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Church, can I just remind you, there's not two types of Christians. It's not the sinners and the saints. There's just one type of Christian. It's the sinner saints. <laughs> like you don't have to polish your halo here this morning. Understand, Christians ought to confess. We ought to confess. In fact, the word of God says in 1 John 1, 8, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth of God is not in you. But verse nine says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Come on, somebody ought to say amen to that promise right there. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let me tell you about this last, last confession that Spurgeon wrote about and preached about in 1857. He called it the blessed confession, though he probably said the blessed confession. It's the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 Verse 21, it says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. If you're unfamiliar with this famous parable from Jesus, this is the younger of two sons. He demands from his father, I want my share of the inheritance. The Bible says he, he takes his, his portion of money and he goes to the distant country and he spends it all on wild living. And when all the money runs out, the friends run out too. And he finds himself huddled in the corner of a pigsty, envying the slop that the pigs are eating. The Bible says that was the moment that he, he came to himself. In verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out. And I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he picks himself up, shakes off his pride, and he makes his way back to his hometown. Finally, he gets to that long, dusty, familiar road that leads to his father's house. And the Bible says before he even gets there, the father sees him. Still a long way off, he sees him and he comes running. 
He runs to the young man. And, and so the speech, you know, he's, he's got it ready. He pulled his notes out. and Father, I have sinned. And then he wants to get to the part about, I don't deserve to be your son. And he wants to get to the part about, just give me a job in the barn and I'll be a servant. But before he can even get to any of that, the father embraces him with his love. He hugs him, he kisses him on the neck, and the Bible says he put a robe on his back and a new ring on his hand and a pair of shoes on his feet, and he told all of his servants, go out and slaughter the fatted calf because my son who was dead is alive again, and he who was lost, he is found. He's found, he's home. That's how quickly you can come back to the Father. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this room. And I want to ask some of our altar team to come. They're coming to the front now because we want to take the opportunity to pray with some of you. And let me say this to you. If, if you're the prodigal, if that describes your life, your circumstances or your own conscience, or maybe it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit has brought you to the place. You've come to your senses like he did, and it has awakened a desire in you to come back to the Father's house. Can I encourage you? Come home. Don't hesitate. Just come confessing. I have sinned. And I want to promise you, he doesn't want to hear the rest of the speech. He's not waiting for your explanation or your validation. He just wants to wrap you up in his loving arms and robe you in his righteousness. Come home. And let me just say to the saints here today, if you've been feeling that heavy hand of God upon your life and you would say, it feels like my strength is sapped. It's like my bones are weary. And you would say, I've lost the joy of my salvation. I didn't stop believing, but I've lost the joy of my salvation. Can I encourage you to confess today? Confess to the Lord. Come out from under the burden of sin and shame. Come confessing Him. We're gonna have these closing moments and Kayla's gonna just sing an old familiar hymn. It says, I surrender all. And I want to invite you, whether you make an altar right where you're standing or if you want to come and stand with one of these men or women in the church, we want to just take a moment, sinner and saint alike, all of us, and just say like David said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Father, right now, we just turn this whole sanctuary into a place of prayer, to a moment of consecration, to a time of confession. Lord, I pray that there would be no one that, that feels hesitant about coming with confidence that your grace is greater than sin. God, may we not have a despairing repentance like Judas that, that feels the guilt and a load of condemnation, but doesn't allow conviction to draw him back to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that your word declares over each and every one of us in Romans 8 and 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
Father, we come to you right now with a heart of repentance. We ask you to do your work. Do your work in our hearts. Do your work in our lives. Friends, can I encourage you right now just to, to begin to just respond to the Lord, not, not, in, not in a general, vague, corporate sense, but specifically allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Allow His Holy Spirit to, to convict you, to reprove you, to bring correction and to bring healing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, therefore, if anyone confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my Father in heaven. But if, ever, if anyone denies me, I will deny them before my Father in heaven. So Jesus, we confess you today. Come on, these altars are open for a moment. Let's just respond to his love.